This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. I suppose you know this that uh, this particular lecture room is the most exercise to get to of any of the seminars. Did you all recognize as you're coming? So even though we're going to start in about 30 seconds on time, we're not going to feel bad about anyone who comes in late because this was quite a hike to get here. And my hat is off to those of you who made this hike successfully. And I hope it will make you alert. This temperature should make you alert. The walk should make you alert, so I should have good attention. And breakfast wasn't overly large, so this should work out for me. And I'm happy that you're here. All right. uh, Just tell me, do you have room to kneel where you are if we kneel to start? Then let's kneel for a prayer and we'll begin. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you will bless our time here, that by your Holy Spirit you would make these moments useful to you that you would let your Bible speak clearly to us. And I ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. For the last uh, couple months of my life, I've been involved in an evangelistic campaign in Arkansas. And it's made me keenly aware that you could come into the Seventh-day Adventist Church through an evangelistic series, seriously study everything you hear, be very interested, review all of it, and when you are baptized, have never even heard the numbers 1888. Do you see how that could happen? That you could go through that whole process, and then imagine... What could happen to you, like could happen to some of to the young man that we baptized a couple weeks ago, that then you meet someone who talks about 1888, and you just can't place it. Was that the 1260? Was that the 2300? And it, it could just really be a confusing thing, right? And maybe for some of you it is confusing, and, and I want to speak to that group, even though there's a bunch of the rest of you here, I want to speak to that group in particular. 1888 is a date, and uh, as a date, it is not connected with any time prophecy in Daniel, nor any time prophecy in Revelation. It is not a date related to a fulfillment of a time prophecy. Rather, it's kind of like that experience when you're driving with a GPS in an unfamiliar city and you come to where the road splits off into two or three exits, and you can't tell by the purple line exactly whether it's this one or the next one, and just as you choose one, you realize it was the... Have any of you done that, the wrong one? You've taken the wrong one? 1888 is like that in the history of the Adventist church. It was a turning point. It was guaranteed to be a turning point. And we made the wrong turn. It was significant because it was an opportunity, and it's significant because it was a missed opportunity. Both of those 
are so significant that they have a lot to do with how the church is today. That is, the, in the first sense, 1888 was an opportunity for the church to begin to fulfill its mission of taking the gospel to the whole world in one generation. It was when God was ready and willing to start the mighty work that would finish everything. In that sense, 1888 was, it was so big. But if you have such a big opportunity, what is it when you miss it? Isn't that a very big loss? That is, if it's a big opportunity and you miss it, then that's, you've lost a great deal. Uh, what I'm trying to do is to help you sort of catch up to people who are all around you who just seem to have known about 1888 for years and understand why they've been talking about it. They've been talking about it the same way that if you were driving on that trip and you missed a turn on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, and now you have to go 30 miles before you get to another opportunity to turn around. Has anyone ever been on the Pennsylvania Turnpike or on some road like that? Like, there are some times when you make a wrong turn, you can't just fix it. You're going to be going the wrong way for some time. And, you, and probably if you're me driving and you miss the turn and you have the wrong people in the car, you're going to be talking about it for some time. Aren't you going to be talking about that for some time? You're going to be talking about it because the question is, why didn't you make it? What was wrong with you? Well, that's what happens when you miss a real opportunity. People have been talking about this for a long time. But there's something more to it, and it's why we're going to have six hours instead of one. Because of the great opportunity that we missed as a people, because of what God intended to do, Satan has taken advantage of that ever since that time to have one man or another or a group of men arise saying that they have the same blessing that God was bringing to us at that turning point, and if we will only follow them, we'll all end up happily ever after. That is, there are many messages who are hitchhiking on this history that we're talking about. 1888 is really big because of what could have been and what wasn't. Does anyone here have an 1888 phone number? You know, 1888 and then something, something else? And I just noticed recently that they've opened up 1844 phone numbers. Anyone see that? You can, I, I just thought about, do you have one? I just thought this, that would be something, we live in an age when you can get those. But 1888, the three eights are just a coincidence. It has nothing to do with numerology or anything else. 1888 just happened to be the year when a number of things converged together. It was just a few years, less than 10 years after James White had died. And maybe you've heard the name James White. You could almost call him the founder of the church. I mean, the church wasn't founded by one man, but if you were going to put the weight on one man, he would get more, more of it than someone else. James White had died, and he did that from overwork. If there's some lesson that you can just learn from James White's experience, it's that even if you do ministry, you need a rest. That you were not created to work, 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 busy, 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 busy. You weren't. Even if you have 
the type of work that can be done legitimately on Sabbath, you ought to freshen up with periods of rest and then go forth braced for another strain. We were made that way. And it was by just working incessantly that James White died before 1888. Like, I can't say how things would have gone, but it just seems to me as a lover of history that if James White had been alive in 1888, that maybe I never would have been born. That the world possibly could have ended already. And I just wouldn't want it to be that anyone here who could make that kind of difference on the planet would just work to such an extent that you wouldn't be here at the moment we needed you. Let's look at some things in the Bible. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 5. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 5 should be to you almost as familiar as Exodus chapter 20. Deuteronomy 5 is the other place where you find the Ten Commandments. Are you there? Deuteronomy 5, and we're going to begin in verse 27. This is after the thunder and the lightnings and the smoke and the trembling mountain. The people said to Moses, Go thou near and hear all that the Lord our God will say, and speak thou unto us all that the Lord our God shall speak unto you, and we will hear it and do it. You see that when God made that mighty experience on the mountain, that there were people who were afraid and they wanted to, to be in God's favor, but they didn't want to be in his presence. Can any of you relate to that, wanting to be in his favor but not wanting to be in his presence? It was just too exciting, too much thunder, too much shaking, too much smoke. And they said, Moses, you go listen to God. You have that private communion with him. And then you come back and tell us what we should do, and we'll do it which is almost how people relate today to preachers. Almost like you go and have a special experience with God, and you come tell us what we should do, and we'll do it. But I don't think that does it for anyone, and it wasn't good enough here, although to say they would obey a prophet is better than saying you'll obey a preacher, right? Look at verse 31. But as for thee, oh, excuse me, Verse, what I have you read? Verse 28, 27. Verse 28. And the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spake unto me. And the Lord said unto me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken unto you. They have well said all that they have spoken. They were speaking to Moses, and in a way it sounded like they wanted Moses to go speak to God. But was it necessary for Moses to go speak to God? Did God hear when they were talking to Moses? And so it was not necessary. They could skip that step, right? God could respond. And what did God say about their promise to obey? He affirmed it. They ought to do just what they said. They ought to listen to what Moses teaches. They ought to obey what he teaches. Verse 29. Oh, that there was such a heart in them <clears throat> that they would fear me 
and keep all my commandments always. Do you see the, the two alls there? They're both significant. One is how many commandments should they keep? They should keep all the commandments. And then the other is that they should keep them all the time. Do you see both of those? And what God said is that they said the right thing, but they don't have the right kind of heart in them. They don't fear him in the proper sense. And because they don't have a new heart, because they don't fear God, even though they promised to obey, were they going to be successful? Either because of their unconverted heart, they were either going to fall in the sense that they weren't going to keep all the commandments, or else they were going to fall in the sense that they weren't going to keep them consistently all the time. That is, with an unregenerate heart, if some of, you, of us here, if maybe all of us here, if it was possible that everyone here had an unregenerate heart, still, we would be keeping most of the commandments. I mean, you might be committing adultery, but not murdering or stealing. Or you might be breaking the Sabbath, but not... The devil really doesn't need or even feel burdened to get you to violate everything. That would make you feel so cold and dark and, and evil that you might search for something better. The problem with an unregenerate heart isn't that it never obeys, it's that it obeys partially. Or, with an unregenerate heart, maybe you could obey all the commandments some of the time. But you couldn't manage it with any level of consistency. So God mourns. And what is his mourning? By, I mean, what is he sad about? He says, I wish that you had a new heart. I wish that you feared me. If you had that, then you could obey me in every way and all the time. And what would be the effect of that, verse 29? It might be well with them and with their children forever. That's what God is aiming at. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. We're looking now at salvation in the Old Testament, and I'll show you how that connects to 1888 before the end of the hour. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6. <clears throat> it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your, what's the next word? Your heart and the heart of your seed, that is of your children, so that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that thou mayest live. Isn't that a beautiful promise? Do you see there that the word circumcision is used as a metaphor in that verse? That in that verse, circumcision isn't a reference to a ritual. It's a, it is, the ritual itself was a symbol of what this verse is talking about. In this verse is talking about a change of heart, isn't it? I'll circumcise their heart. I'm going to change them in the inside. And what happens when he changes us in the inside? then we could love him with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind. What I want you to see is this metaphor of having a new heart is not a New Testament idea. I mean, it is a New Testament idea, but I mean it's not a New Testament idea uniquely. That's what I'm trying to say. That a new heart, 
it's not like it's a brand new idea that comes in the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It goes way back. Look at Genesis 17. Genesis 17 is where circumcision is introduced in the Bible. Genesis chapter 17. And looking at verse 7. This isn't the first time God chooses Abraham. That's in verse chapter 12. But this is where he introduces the rite of circumcision as something that Abraham is going to have special for him and for those who follow his training. Verse 7 says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you in their generations for a, what's the phrase there? An everlasting covenant to be a God unto them and to your seed after you. This is what God said to Abraham. He offered him a covenant, and this covenant is certainly not the Old Covenant. How do I know it's not the Old Covenant? Because Hebrews 8 says that Old Covenant decays and is ready to perish. It's ready to vanish away. That's what God says. And here, what is this covenant called in verse 7? It's an everlasting covenant. Now, when Abraham was given circumcision, did he know that this was a metaphor of something? He sure did. Look down at verse 11. It says, and, he, and you will circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant between me and you. A token, that is a symbol or a metaphor or an illustration. What Abraham knew is that this, this ritual wasn't the covenant, but it was a symbol of the covenant. And right in these same books that were given to Moses we found out God wants to change our heart. Let's review what we've looked at because we're about to build on it with some things that are being more new to us perhaps. So the people said, God, we will obey you. God said they have well said all that they have spoken. Oh, that there was such a heart in them that they might fear me, that they might keep my commandments, all my commandments always, that it might be well with them and with their children after them. God offered that to the people. He said he would circumcise our hearts so that we could love him in every way. Now turn with me in your Bibles to one of the most interesting verses, Isaiah 55. You probably sing this, some of you. There are two scripture songs that I know in this chapter. Isaiah 55. We could start in verse 1 because someone might break out into singing if we do. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come to the waters. He that has no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat that which is good. And let your soul delight itself in fatness. That would be like prosperity. Verse 3, Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear, and your soul will live. And I will make, what does it say? An everlasting covenant with you, 
even the sure mercies of David. There's a familiar thing and a mysterious thing. The familiar thing is the everlasting covenant. We get an everlasting covenant. That is, God said to Abraham, I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with you. And now he says to some other people, I'm going to make one with you. What's the condition? It's that we pay attention. It's that we listen, that we hear, that we come to him. It's that we, it sounds a lot like faith because faith comes by hearing. It, it, it's this idea of listening to what God says. He's going to make an everlasting covenant with us. And what is this everlasting covenant? He calls it the sure mercies of David. Oh, we're going to learn what that is in our next passage, but let's read on just a little bit further. Uh, let's look at verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God and he will abundantly pardon. <clears throat> what an amazing thing. It is amazing in verse 7 that you could be right now in this room a wicked person. You could be a wicked person, and instead of God saying, depart from me, you wicked, into everlasting, instead of, instead of God saying that, he says to you, a wicked person, let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man turn from his thoughts. It says, what did it say there in verse 7? Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. This is part of the everlasting covenant. But we're going to start to recognize these elements because we find these every time we find the everlasting covenant. God can show mercy to wicked people. He offers mercy to us who might be wicked people. What about these sure mercies? Look back at Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is where we find one of two places in the Bible where we find these sure mercies. That is, the mercies that are certain. Psalm 89, and looking at verse 19. Then you spake in vision to your Holy One. Who do you think that was? That's Christ. And you said, I have laid help upon one that is mighty, I have exalted one chosen out of the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil have I anointed him. Oh, look down at verse 26. What about this David? It says, He will cry unto me, You are my Father and my God and the rock of my salvation. I will make him my, what's the word? I will make him my firstborn. Who does that sound like? That sounds a lot like Jesus. Under the figure of David, but Jesus, I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. My mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed, that is the seed of this man, Jesus, his seed will I also make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. If his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments. Now let's stop right there. 
So God makes a sure promise here to David, but now that we come to the question, what if his children break the Ten Commandments? The promise is to David, but what about his children? What if his children louse up and break God's law? Look at verse 30. If his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then I will visit their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn in my holiness that I will not lie unto David, his seed will endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It's a beautiful promise. God says that if I will be a seed of David, if I'm part of the seed of David or the seed of Jesus, as I understand this passage, if I do the wrong thing, he's going to spank me. A lot of you are parents. It looks to me like you must be at the, by how you look. Parents, have you ever thought about how merciful it is of you to spank your children? Because the alternative is kicking them out of the house. To disinherit them, right? To like send them out when they do the wrong thing. To say, you're not my child anymore. Be gone. Do you see how merciful it is to spank them? And do you see what God says here? When we become his children, that Jesus, the mighty one, the firstborn, his throne is going to be forever. His children are going to endure forever. They're never going to die. But what if before they get to that eternal age, what if right here in the here and now they sin? What is he going to do about that? He's going to punish us. He's going to lay on us stripes. He's going to chastise us. Not to like destroy us and make us feel lost. What is his purpose? It's to bring us back to him. What he wants, of course, is that the wicked would forsake his way. That the unrighteous would turn from it. And that, because then he would abundantly pardon. What we're talking about are the sure mercies of David. The sure mercies of David, that's the everlasting covenant. I hope you begin to see how beautiful this covenant is. This covenant makes provision for our sins. It makes provision so that we can still get to heaven though we fall. These things I write unto you that you sin not, but if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ the righteous. Turn to Jeremiah 31. I think you may have noticed that we've been in the Old Testament the entire time that we've been looking this morning. The Old Testament is the Bible that Paul loved. It's the one he preached from. This is the Bible that Jesus studied. It's the Bible that has the gospel that was sufficient, according when Paul spoke to Timothy, it was sufficient to lead him in the way of salvation. Are you in Jeremiah 31? Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. 
Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Stop there for a minute. This covenant that was made with them, is that the one that was made with Abraham? No, Abraham wasn't alive when they came out of Egypt. This is the covenant we read about in Deuteronomy chapter 5. The one where they said, what did they say? All that you've said, we will do. It's that covenant. And it's the covenant where God mourned and said, the problem here is that they, they said the right thing, but they don't, have a, they don't have a new heart. If they don't have a new heart, they won't keep all my commandments and or they won't keep them always. And if they don't keep them always, all of them, I can't bless them and I can't bless their children. That's the old covenant. But here it says not like that. It says, and why not? That covenant they break. Although I was a husband unto them, says the Lord. But this will be the covenant. When it says they broke that covenant, was that a surprise to God or did he anticipate that? Wasn't it very clear in Deuteronomy that he anticipated it from the very moment they said it? Like that from the very moment he knew they were going to break it because of the kind of heart they had. He knew that right off. He says, but this will be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts I, and will be their God and they will be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, says the Lord. That part of the covenant is like that throne that's going to be forever and ever that we read about in Psalm 89. Is there going to come a time when everyone knows the Lord? There will, because just think it through just logically for a minute. <clears throat> if these are all the people on planet Earth, and these are the ones that have the sure mercies of David, I can't do this well with my hands. So... If these are the ones that have the sure mercies of David and these are the ones who don't, which of these are going to last forever? It's only the ones that have the sure mercies of David. What's going to happen to these? They're going to be gone. And when they're gone, you know who's left? They're not going to say to every man, know the Lord, because they all will know him from the least of them to the greatest. Everyone is going to know because that's all that's going to be left. This is the new covenant, the sure mercies of David, the everlasting covenant that God is making. The last part of that, and we're halfway through verse 34. We don't want to miss the last half of verse 34. It says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What we've seen so far this morning and we're going to go on and look at some other things, is that there is an everlasting covenant that God has made with people from way back, and he's going to keep it for way forward. The new covenant is used a few times in the Bible, this phrase. The old covenant is used very few times in the Bible, but it's used a few times. But the everlasting covenant is used more than both of them together. This is God's normal plan for getting people to heaven. The new covenant is the everlasting covenant. The new covenant is the everlasting covenant 
that came with some really special information. Because here in the everlasting covenant, when God promised He's going to write His law in the heart, that's a neat miracle that He can do that. When He promised that we're going to all know Him, that's a neat miracle. But when He said He's going to forgive us, it was mysterious for a very long time how He could manage that. I mean, you could believe he's going to do it without having any idea how he, could, how he could do it and be just. You could believe that God's going to forgive you and maybe believe that he's going to do it and, and just skip over justice. But what the New Testament revealed, this new covenant, what the experience of the lambs illustrated is that God could be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. That was the precious... I'm trying to help you understand about the new covenant and the everlasting covenant. They're not different covenants, but the new covenant added some information that was really precious about Jesus. And that is how this forgiveness in the old covenant is going to work. Now, there's no roving mic, but before I go on, does anyone have a question that you just like, and I'll repeat it here if you do, because if I've lost you, I'm willing to back up and say something over. But if I haven't lost you, I don't want to. All right, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. And if I was too quick on the draw there and you still have a question, just put your hand up at any time and I will probably call you. Unless I recognize you as one of those people who just like to take over meetings by asking questions, in which case I will not call on you. Romans chapter 2 and verse 28. You do have a question. Yes. Go ahead. You want to confirm. You are saying that in the Old Testament there is a new covenant, everlasting covenant. That's right. And we saw that very plainly in Jeremiah 31. The, the key phrase there it says, not like the covenant that I made with your fathers in the day that I took them out of the land of Egypt. So that was Jeremiah 31, 31, says right there about two very different covenants. One like the kind made there in Deuteronomy 5, and one different than that. Of course, we did start with the everlasting because Jeremiah 17, excuse me, Genesis 17 is a long ways before Deuteronomy 5. So the everlasting covenant is the first one. But the reason that the Old Covenant was made is because the silly people promised. Do you remember that? We read that in Deuteronomy 5. It's not like God said, are you going to obey? Didn't they volunteer? They volunteered. They volunteered to obey. And if they really could obey all the time, well, that would mean they do have a regenerate heart. It would mean really that the Spirit is living inside of them. That would have been the experience of Abraham. But God said, I know that they don't have that experience. And so, I don't know how to illustrate this, but I reckon that maybe you've had children. Uh, sometimes children have to learn things by making mistakes or getting hurt. Sometimes they have to learn. And when it comes to people who have so much unbounded confidence in themselves that they really think that they can be good people by, the, by their willpower... Sometimes it's in God's interest to just let them give it a go. Because what happens when you give a go at just trying to be good enough? 
You know, you only manage it while your ideas of goodness are pretty low. As long as your idea of goodness is not beating people up, you can manage that pretty well, right? But as soon as your idea of goodness goes higher and you begin to understand what holiness is like, well, that's what God did for them here. He wanted to give them an experience. In fact, if we'd, we could have spent a lot more time on this and we're just not going to because we just can't. I mean, we're not going to because I won't. But, um, but God was very thorough in the education of Israel. He said, an angel's going to go before you. He said, listen to that angel. He's not going to pardon your transgressions. God was trying to create in them this idea that, oh no, what are we going to do? If we louse up, <clears throat> we're in trouble. <clears throat> and if they could only be led to be desperate like that, <clears throat> they might see something beautiful in the lamb. They might see that there's just really something that we need in this sanctuary service. So the purpose of the sanctuary was to teach people about the new covenant experience, to teach them about how to depend, how God wanted to write his law on the inward parts in the heart. I, I've been talking so long I forgot your question. Did I answer it? Okay. <clears throat> Are you in Romans 2? Yes. Romans 2, verse 28. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which was one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of man, but of God. Now let me ask you, this idea that Paul teaches in Romans 2, is it a brand new idea that Paul pulled out of the hat, or have we already seen this in Genesis and Exodus? You know, or it was Genesis and Deuteronomy. But anyway, we've already seen it there in, the, in Genesis and Deuteronomy. We've already seen that when God talked about circumcision of the flesh, that was a token. And that what he really wanted to do was to circumcise their heart. He wanted to circumcise their mind. It was just a way of, we say, being born again. We say being regenerate. It's just different phrases for the same idea. That's the idea that is real circumcision. That's what it means to really be a Jew. What I'm sharing with you is what opened my mind to the Old Testament. Because before this, like if you don't understand Romans 2, 28 and 29, you feel kind of funny reading the New Covenant. Because the New Covenant is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Anyone ever notice that? The Gentiles are always talking about the New Covenant, but it never mentions them. <clears throat> the new covenant is made with Israel and with Judah. But who are the real descendants? Who are those who are really circumcised? It's those who have the heart. Look at Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. That's a chapter that when you first become an Adventist, you hear it a lot, but you're not sure what's in it, but you know it's important. And I hear you laughing, but that was, that was a lot of you, right, at some point. 
Like, Adventism has a lot of information. You, just because you believe it when you hear it doesn't mean you remember it. Can anyone relate to that? Like you believed it, but it's not like you could remember it? And uh, <clears throat> our churches must be continually educating, reviewing, going over the data, because you know when you were taking any other class in school, you had to go over and over it even to keep it, right? Revelation chapter 14, and looking at verse 6, it says, And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every kindred and nation and tongue and people. Let's just stop there for just a moment. What kind of gospel? <clears throat> We're coming back to 1888 right now. And what I want you to understand is that 1888 is not a new gospel. 1888 is not a message that was like some different message than the gospel that has been preached by those who are preaching the true gospel anyway for a long time. What kind of gospel does the first angel's message give? It's the everlasting gospel. Do you know when the first angel's message was given? You know, 1842, 1843, 1844, it's been given ever since that time. The everlasting gospel, the one that goes to every kindred, nation, and tongue, and people, is not any different than the everlasting covenant. It's just the same thing. Now, I don't mean that there aren't more things to learn. Like, I feel like I learned new things this morning about the everlasting gospel. I think maybe you learned some new things this morning about the everlasting gospel. We surely are going to study this for a very long time, but it's not, it's not like there are two gospels. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have received, well, you know in Galatians 1, that's not good, right? Uh, let him be accursed, is what it says. Uh, there is a gospel, there's an everlasting covenant, and that covenant... Does that gospel include, for example, the writing of the law in the heart? It does. Does the gospel include the judgment? How do you know the gospel includes the judgment? But one way you can know is from right here, right? Because the angel that has the everlasting gospel says in the next verse, uh, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his... But there's another way you can know... Uh, you don't need to keep a finger here because I think I'm done with here. But turn to Romans 2. <clears throat> Romans chapter 2. And I just want you to see that the gospel, the everlasting gospel of the first angel's message is the same gospel that Paul was preaching. We need to really read verse 12 and then verse 16 because... In our weak-minded states, uh, Paul does this many times. He gives a sentence that's a long sentence, and in the middle of it, he puts a long parenthetical sentence. And, uh, and we get so lost in the parentheses that we forget that we're only halfway done with a sentence. So verse 12 and verse 16 are one sentence together, and everything in between them is the parentheses. Do you follow what I'm saying? Verse 12 says... For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. 
But as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. Verse 16, in the day when God will judge the secrets of man by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. In other words, according to Paul's gospel, is there going to be a day for the judgment? And in that day, is God going to judge the secrets of men? And he's going to judge them by what? According to the first half of the sentence in verse 12. They're going to be judged by the law, right? So does it make good sense to you then when you read what, what Solomon said? When Solomon said that, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter, fear God and give, what do you say? I don't, keep his commandments. That's, I switched to the first angel's message there, didn't I? For this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every work into judgment. The idea of keeping the commandments, the idea of keeping the commandments because of the judgment is the same idea in the first angel's message. It's the same idea right here in Romans chapter 2. I think that's probably as much Bible study as I'd better do because otherwise I'm going to skip all the history. And the history is important if you're talking about 1888. But what I was going to go over, and I didn't, is Hebrews 8 and 10. So maybe you can just go over that yourself. I think if you read Hebrews 8 after what we've said, you can just understand it just reading through it. So leading up to 1888, God was preparing his people for a message about Christ and his righteousness. It was a message about David. I mean, Jesus, under the figure of David, the sure mercies of David are really the sure mercies of of Jesus. Do you follow that idea? It was a message about how we could have righteousness. It was about the law and the gospel being combined. When so long men had been trying to put them apart, there was quite a message, and God was preparing his people for it. But there were some things in that year that also set people up to take that wrong turn. One is that they loved to argue. None of them said they loved to argue. It just appears to me when I read about it that they love to argue. Do you love to argue? It's really ironic that the truth is so powerful that it enables you to win arguments. You can win arguments with the truth. Right now, I have a Bible study with a, a couple from Saudi Arabia. And uh, our next study is going to be on Daniel chapter 9. About the Messiah, for example. And, um, you know, they really want me to watch some YouTube videos of a Muslim debater who, takes, who tackles Christianity. Now, I think that I could watch those videos and because the truth is on my side, I think I could probably tear apart his arguments. But do you think that would be something that would draw me closer to this couple? I don't think so either. What I'm trying to illustrate for you is an idea. The argument really brings out the worst in us. Do any of you recognize argument brings out the worst in you? That when you argue that that your kindness and courtesy and warmth and love and intercession, all those things kind of suffer, 
And the only part that sticks out is your arrogance and knowledge. And you're trying to make the knowledge stand out, but that's what makes your arrogance show up, right? So that argument caused some issues. In the case of, of leading up to 1888, that year, one of the key arguments was about the law in Galatians. Maybe you ought to at least look at the passage, Galatians chapter 3. Someone who represents the convention here, am I supposed to stop at 50? All right, so this will have to be to be continued. But anyway, there's six hours, so that's okay. Galatians chapter 3, looking down at 20, verse 24. <clears throat> it says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a, a schoolmaster. The way that our pioneers had used this passage is they said these verses, not all our pioneers, but most of them, had said these verses are talking about the ceremonial law. That's the way. And that makes good sense. Doesn't the ceremonial law teach you about Jesus? He's the lamb. He's the sanctuary. He's illustrated by the candlestick. In a lot of ways, you can just see it. The ceremonial law was meant to teach us about Jesus. But some other men who were studying, they went back to verse 20, 23, where it says, But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. They saw in verse 23 and 25 that this law the change in relation to this law didn't happen at the cross. It happened at conversion. Do you see that here? That the change here happens when faith comes? And they said, that's not the ceremonial law. We're not obligated to kill lambs until we're born again. All right? They said, this is the moral law. But to the first class, that seemed like, that seemed like caving in to the evangelicals. If we say that this is the ceremonial law, excuse me, if we say this is the moral law, then it says we're no longer under a schoolmaster. And, uh, and you ended up with two classes of people who both believed the very same thing about Romans 3.31. Do we then make void the law of God through faith? Not at all. We establish the law. They both believed the same thing about James 2, 8-12. You know, the royal law, the, the one that if you break one part, you've broken them all, the the law that we're just judged by, that they all believed the same thing about the law of God. But because they disagreed about this passage, um, there, were, there were some hard feelings. Oh, be careful with hard feelings. When I look back at the history of Christianity, I say hard feelings have a lot to do with people being lost. They have a lot to do because the devil is looking for his opportunity for the clink in your armor. And if he can get us irritated, you know, he, don't you think he's ready? Well, let me preach about that as an illustration. Ellen White talks about going to public universities to study. She says that it's 
I'm putting my own words in her mouth, but this is the idea. It's perfectly safe for you to attend a public university. But then she says, but she hardly dares recommend this mode of labor. She says, if you are converted every single day, if you're always on your guard, but if you let down your guard for a moment, the devil is ready. He's on your track. He's going to get you. Well, what's true about public universities is partially true about planet Earth right now. Do you understand what I'm trying to communicate? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. So the summary of what we looked at in our first lecture, and boy, it didn't last long, is the idea that 1888, it's a coincidence that it looks like a phone number. It's a coincidence that it has three eights. It's, uh, It's not a fulfillment of a time prophecy in Daniel Revelation. But what was it? It was an opportunity and it was a missed opportunity. And we'll talk a lot more about that in the next two lectures, about what those opportunities were. But it was an opportunity that was so important that when we missed it, it made the the wrong turn just as important. That is, the wrong turn was important because the opportunity was important. And what God was trying to do is to bring right into our field of vision, put right in front of our faces, the gospel. So that the gospel could come to a whole church that had, as it were, said, we will obey. Do you know who Seventh-day Adventists are? We're the church that said, we will obey. Is that a good thing to say? Why, in Deuteronomy 5, what did God say? They have well said all that they have spoken. It's great that we're the church that says we will obey. But what God says back to our church in the Laodicean message is, oh, that there was such a heart in them that they would fear me, that they would keep my commandments, all of them, always. Then it would be well with them. Then it would be well with their children. But it's not that way yet. So God brought to us a message of the everlasting gospel designed to lead to a true heart conversion so that we could be blessed with God's peculiar people of all ages, so we could be part of those children of David that when they sin, does God cast them off? No, he disciplines them and he retains them and they end up lasting forever like the throne of God forever and ever. Those are the sure mercies of David. Let's kneel for a prayer. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would give us the sure mercies of David, that you would get so involved in our life individually that you would even discipline us when we go the wrong way, that you would correct us, that you would invite us to forsake our ways and to turn away from our thoughts, that you would help us to treasure your promise to abundantly pardon Finish the work you've started. I thank you for that gift, and I ask in the name of Jesus, amen. 
This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible based, Christ centered, and soul winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. <laughs> 